Hey, welcome to the Doc Porter Podcast. I'm Dave McVeigh, co-writer, along with my buddy Jim Ballone. Uh, thanks for choosing us. Every week we'll be dropping a new chapter, maybe even two, of our 2021 novel, The Doc Porter, which is set on Mackinac Island, Michigan, read by me. When we published the book in 2021, we really had no idea it would take off. It ended up winning a Michigan Notable Book Award and was an Amazon bestseller for like at least a few minutes. Uh, it seemed to have struck a chord, and it's been pretty amazing to see the whole thing take off. So why are we giving the book away on a podcast when we can also sell it on Audible, which we are selling it on Audible? That's actually a pretty good question. Um, in fact, now that you mention it, let's just forget this whole thing. I'm kidding. We're giving it away because we are building up to something really special. Um, coming in August 2023, we're releasing the prequel to The Doc Porter called Somewhere in Crime. In Somewhere in Crime, we go back even further to the summer of 1979. Mackinac Island was the backdrop for a Hollywood movie called Somewhere in Time, starring Christopher Reeve and Jane Seymour. The hero of the Doc Porter, Jack, was 11 that summer, and he was the paperboy. He ends up trying to solve a cold case murder while bumbling in and out of the Somewhere in Time production. So anyway, enjoy the Doc Porter and get ready for Somewhere in Crime, which is coming in August of 2023 to Amazon and the Mackinac Island Bookstore, and hopefully other outlets, TBD. Thanks again for listening. Chapter 11. My Downward Spiral. August 15, 1989. I avoided joining the family dealership as a badge of honor, and it caused a boatload of tension between myself and Big Jack. I didn't dig that new car smell, didn't want to be an Ann's son, and preferred an old Schwinn to a new Oldsmobile. But for all my griping, I did learn a thing or two working during school breaks at the parts department of McGuinn Oldsmobile. For instance, how to hotwire everything and anything, from an 84 Oldsmobile Tornado to, say, a golf cart. It was a nifty trick passed down to me from one of my dad's more ethics-challenged mechanics. If he only knew how useless I really was to his future at the dealership, he probably wouldn't have wasted his time trying to win me over. Regardless, it stuck. So at 3 a.m., the night I learned of the plans for the island, I found myself at the end of the Arnold Line dock, where Gordon stored his small but growing fleet of gleaming electric luggage carts, attempting to get one started. I vaguely recall a half-consumed bottle of Mad Dog 2020 nearby. Perhaps I was mumbling to myself. Fast, efficient, hauls 40 bags, never tries to sleep with the guests. Ha 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 ha! But does it float, Gordo? Shouldn't that be a key feature? I mean, we live on an island after all. Three encores, Jack. It was brilliant. Better than the dream. I looked up from my work, wrench in hand. Erin was riding towards me on her bike, her figure barely illuminated by the dock's halogen backlights. The moment she got closer, her face darkened. With me hunched over and the bottle nearby, she knew I was into something bad. Jesus, what the hell are you doing? Leave me alone, I called back. You don't want to be a witness to this. I'm being... Illegal. I stood up. Did you know about the big plan? Your old squeeze is taking over half the island. It's not just these stupid luggage carts. I kicked the cart hard. Pain shot up from my big toe. 
It's the whole fucking island. She put down the kickstand and walked towards me cautiously, still lightly perspiring from the jam session. Her face sparkled in the strange late-night light. She gazed at the bottle. Don't eat the head off of me, Jack. I have no idea what you're going on about, she said. You sure? After all, wasn't he the one that took you away from it all? He must have whispered something about this little operation during your pillow talks. I looked back down at the wires of the cart with a hot flash of sobriety and shame. I had just crossed the line. Asshole, she snapped. I was open with you. Right, and I'm asking if he was open with you, Aaron. I didn't discuss real estate with him, if that's really what you're asking. Her face lost all expression. A wall of disdain grew. Another brick with each word. If I could just refrain from talking, maybe I could salvage. Nope. Well, that's too bad. Here's a tip, though. Maybe if you're nice, Gordon will hire you to play fiddle at the Island Titty Bar. She knew nothing about the casino plan. It was obvious. But for reasons I can't explain, I didn't care. My brain was a mashed potato and gravy blend of resentfulness and despair. I hopped in the golf cart and pushed the start button. The electric motor kicked in with a whine. Ha ha ha! It's alive! I yelled. She turned away and walked to her bike. You're as thick as a plank. Have a nice swim. Swim? You think I don't have a plan? I called back. You never have a plan, Jack. Well, this time I do. I have a great plan, and it's not... What's the word? Pending! She mounted her bike and silently pedaled away. I watched her go. I remember catching the wavering orange lights of the yacht docks reflecting off the water, a living canvas of color that would never grow old. I took it in. My sanity flooded back in a warm rush. Then it passed. I stepped on the accelerator and steered the cart directly towards the end of the dock. If I remember correctly, the idea was to leap out, a la James Dean in Rebel Without a Cause, or Kevin Bacon in Footloose, at the exact moment it jettisoned off the dock in a slow-motion tumble into the lake. I would thus prove to the world, or at least the island community, how committed I was to preserving Mackinac Island's rich heritage, lauded for my act of subversive bravery. A hero! Shit, man. It was almost green piecey. It didn't quite go down that way. As the edge of the dock approached, I turned to my left to jump out and smashed my knee hard on the fiberglass dashboard with a sickening thud. It was excruciating. I grabbed my knee in agony rather than continuing my planned cinematic tuck-and-roll exit from the cart. It sailed over the edge of the dock like the final scene in Thelma and Louise. With me in it. The boys passed the hat and sprung me from jail around noon the next day. They hadn't known I was fished from the lake and arrested until they showed up for the first boat in the morning and I was nowhere to be found. Trina stopped by the docks to let Foster know I was sleeping off a bender in the clink after driving a golf cart into the lake. It was serious. This time, I imagined, the boys didn't cackle. Much. The chief of police had known me since I was nine and allowed me to sleep off the previous night's debacle without interruption. Big Jack had donated the only car on the island, an emergency police vehicle, 
and of course Gramps knew everyone from the beginning of time. The McGuinn family still had some leftover Goodwill chips on the table for me to squander. I had all the advantages a cottage boy could expect, except, of course, getting away with it. I survived, but the golf cart was now resting at the bottom of Haldeman Bay. Gordon didn't press charges, according to the deputy working behind the desk, a sleepy-eyed officer in his 60s we all called Barney Fife. He counted out the bail money, had me sign some paperwork, and let me out, all while fixing me with a stern look that said, you little shits have no idea how good you have it, yet every summer you still manage to screw it up. Island cops had that look down pat. I limped out of the holding cell on Market Street and squinted at the blazing sun. The boys had shown up with the money, but they stood across the street, hanging back, letting me adjust to civilian life in my own way. My temples were pounding like dual sledgehammers. My right knee and toe were screaming, and I had a raspy cough from the drafty jail cell. I wasn't thinking much about Gordon or casinos. At that moment, I mostly wanted to find a discreet bush behind which to expunge the previous night's mad dog. I gazed at the whitewashed houses lining Market Street. I had ridden my stingray past them since I was a kid. Permanent, immutable island fixtures. I counted on Market Street the way you depend on an old friend. This time, it all looked doomed. I was at a point where I desperately needed to start making some good decisions. Instead, all I could muster was another terrible one. I needed a drink. Now that I was a free man, I rode straight to the Pink Pony, my second favorite bar on the island. The Pony was part of the Chippewa Hotel and always had its share of tourists. When I was a kid, the place was an infamously rowdy spot, much like Horns was for my generation. My parents often took the entire Wildcliff guest roster down to the Pony to carouse and sing along with the piano player. Back then, it was legal to take kids into bars, so I retained a fondness for the joint, having snoozed on their pink, naugahyde-covered booths on multiple rowdy occasions before my 10th birthday. I'd fade to sleep at the uproarious but oddly soothing peals of laughter from my parents and their downstate friends. The pink pony was now cleaned up, tasteful, and absolutely not where I should have been. That said, I wasn't well known there. If I wanted to sit and drown my sorrows for, say, hours and hours, I could do it without being recognized. So that's what I did. I ordered a Stroh's and a shot of Jameson, a favorite of Gramps. He was a man who could handle his liquor, and when he said, I'll have a shot and a beer, it sounded like poetry. I convinced myself that I was honoring the old guy. Charles Bukowski, the poet, on the other hand, would have called it crawling into a bottle. The day went on. More Buffett songs. Soon it was Bob Marley's Rastaman vibration. As the place slowly filled up and the sun went down, a singer took the stage with a banged-up acoustic guitar and began belting out all the tourist favorites. It was lovely. Time gently eased into irrelevance in that hazy way so unique to a day-drinking kickoff. I don't remember when I noticed Foster sitting next to me. It was almost startling. Whoa! Hey! What are you doing here? I said. He signaled for me to quiet down. You're yelling, Jack. And I've been here for a half hour. I grabbed a shot that was waiting in front of me and held it up. This one's for you, Foster. The old dog. The master. 
the best Doc Porter on the island. Foster toasted back with a bottle of beer. I agree with the sentiments, Grasshopper, but why do I get the honor? I leaned in, sentimental. Because you get it. Everyone's always thinking about moving on and what's next, and I say screw what's next, and so do you. A thought occurred to me, wildly profound at the moment. You know what's great about you? You don't put your money where your mouth is. That's the sign of a real rebel, man. You stay. He smiled, sizing me up. Guess what? I passed Spanish. Got my degree. Did it all by mail. I stopped short and noticed the first woozy spin. Just a brief moment of funhouse imbalance. I shook it off and straightened. Wow, that's... Why? I thought you hated Spanish. There was always some sort of twisted honor in Foster's 10-year rebellion against earning a college degree. He was absolutely bright enough to pass college Spanish. And if the legend was accurate, a degree for Foster meant an inheritance, potentially a big inheritance, a windfall that could keep him in designer sheets for a long time to come. Foster leaned in close, eyes blazing. It was those sex letters from the senorita, man. The more I could understand, the more I wanted to understand. I nodded back. Sex sells, as the advertising types always said. Foster shook his head, correcting himself on the spot. No, wait, they weren't sex letters. His eyes focused forward, concentrating on some revelation that was directly in his line of sight. What were they? I asked. They were love letters. I don't know what you're talking about, but of course I did. Well, I'm talking about a few things. One, technically, I'm rich. So yes, the rumors are true. Two, I'm going to Veracruz to track her down, and I'm going to talk to her in Spanish. He sipped his beer. I want to make a change. He turned to me. I know what happened. The island, the casinos, Gordon. It's sick, man. I know this summer you think of yourself as some goddamn crusader, but listen to me. This is not your fault. You should scoop up that fine lass of yours and go. Make your own change. I gestured to my glass. I made a change. I switched to gin and tonic. (laughs) He didn't laugh. I'm serious. Do you want to be doing this when you're 45? Schlepping other people's suitcases? He looked at me as if he wanted the truth, so I gave it to him. Yeah, Foster. I kind of do. He broke out in a broad, warm smile. He grabbed me in a headlock and pulled me close. Jesus, you don't get it. She might be the love of your life. Well, guess what? The love of my life hates my guts. I took another sip. I'll just ride blackjack. Show her that I have some balance. I looked at Foster. A load man. Foster looked straight ahead, studying the guitar player. Jack, about that. There's another thing you need to know. Please, I said, continue the hit parade, Casey Kasem. You're leaving. I went to jail. Mackinac's going to be the next Reno. Bring it on. Foster exhaled. You're off the docks. Your antics last night didn't go unnoticed by the ferry line, Big Shots. They can't have a hot-wiring maniac meeting hotel guests. I looked at him closely, trying to decipher whether or not this was a joke. It was the kind of thing he would say to mess with my head. Foster was known to let pranks play out for months, but he looked away, 
signaling to the bartender for another beer. This time, he spoke without looking at me. What did you expect to happen? You're lucky they even let you out of jail. So, there it was. It was the final nail in the coffin. Fired. There would be no blackjack ride, and therefore no more Doc Porters. Not that that mattered, as blue-haired old ladies looking to score big on the nickel slots don't tip. And I'd be managing this shit show. In a suit. And Kelly Green pants. Yep, the bet was settled, the war was over without a shot being fired. I needed to make a getaway. Foster was morphing in front of my eyes into something that eerily resembled an adult. His intense eyes, lined at the corners from years in the sun, were now looking straight through me. He appeared almost wise, and it was freaking me out profoundly. I downed my shot, then his. I grabbed his face and kissed him hard on the cheek. You're my hero, Foster. You're the reason I became a dock porter. Don't you grow up on me. He looked at me, concerned. You okay, buddy? Nope. I pulled out my wallet, fished out a 20, and dropped it on the bar. I stumbled away and knocked into a heavy-set tourist couple, spilling their cocktails. Watch it, the bartender called over. He shot me that cold, hard look that only bartenders know. It's a look that says, one more time and you're out. I'm watching it, I stammered. Lord, I wasn't speaking too well either. My tongue was thick and the place was starting to spin. I stumbled out the door, almost running over... Who? Someone I knew. Wait, it was Vicky, the swimmer from State with a group of giggling friends. Hi, Jack the Doc Porter. She looked at me closely and immediately downshifted to low concern. Oh, oh boy, we should probably get you some fresh air. I was going to get some fresh air. That's so weird. I must have been shouting because she shushed me and yanked me out into the street, gesturing for her friends to go on ahead. I think she also signaled to them that I was a stumbling idiot by making crazy circles around her temple, but I can't prove it. Listen, she said, I was going to grab some food with my friends, but instead, let's hang out. We can have a burger down on the beach, you and me. There's a party on the boardwalk. Yes! You and me hanging out sounds great. I did have a hazy image of seeing Gordon as I rode Vicky in my basket towards the boardwalk bonfire party. He was lingering at the head of the dock with some lackeys. I remember the green Izod shirt and khaki pants and a bemused expression as we passed. I looked straight ahead, but out of the corner of my eye, I could sense a grin from Gordon as he followed us with his eyes. Oddly enough, I rode perfectly straight, and Vicky didn't appear nearly as terrified as she should have. With summer upon summer practice, I was always able to still my spitting melon when I was on my bike. We sat on a log surrounded by the buzz of an island beach party, illuminated by firelight. I glanced around at glowing faces, the silliness of small moments shared. But all I felt was lousy. I needed to get away from it. I took Vicky's hand. Let's sit by the water. It came out sounding like, let's sip of water. All this joy is giving me a headache. She chuckled and rolled her eyes. Yeah, joy and a shit ton of cocktails. We stumbled toward the dark water's edge and sat down on the rocks, listening as waves lapped against the shore. Vicky, I have a girlfriend. Well, had one. She was unfazed, even happy. Aw, deep down you're a good guy. 
I'm proud of you. She paused, thoughtful. Well, I would have been proud of you, I guess. She shrugged. Actually, I'm not too sure what the right response is to that one. Yeah, me either. I was on autopilot now. Her name's Aaron. Aaron from Dublin. She plays one of those massive violins. Vicky nodded. You mean like a cello? That's it, a cello. I can never remember that. Aw, that's so cool. Yeah, but now she hates me. She broke out into her now legendary cackle and raised her cup. Well, Jack McGuinn, the dock porter who has a house on the East Bluff but hauls other people's bags, here's to that. I raised my cup and toasted her glumly. By the way, not one thing you just said is true. I'm none of those things. I'm not a dock porter, I don't have a house on the East Bluff, and I don't haul other people's bags. But, but, the last time I checked, my name is still McGuinn, so... Cheers to that. I slammed it down like cold Gatorade after a hot day on the docks. And that's the last thing I remember. The pain shot out from my temple, followed by a sharp kick in the gut. I howled. It was the very definition of the term rude awakening. I looked up into the star-filled sky, trying to get my bearings. Vicky was lying next to me. Her sweater pulled up, exposing a tan midriff and a hint of a pink bra. She was sleeping deeply, like a happy little baby. Wham! Another hit came hard to my butt. I covered up. Yeah, gobshite! What the hell is wrong with you? There was no mistaking that accent. What sounded so lovely in our tender moments was now frightening, like an angry female pirate. And I could only assume gobshite wasn't a compliment. I scrambled to escape, stumbling to my feet, the loose beach rock shifting under my tennis shoes. She was brandishing her cello bow like a broadsword and advanced on me slowly, her rage heightened by the faint orange glow of the dying bonfire. I asked you a question, Jack. What is wrong with you? I was now holding my head in pain. Everything was muddled and unclear. I had no memory of getting cozy with Vicky. I wasn't even sure where I was at the moment. The party was long over and all that remained were sparkling embers from the bonfire and a soft line of sunlight easing up over the horizon. 4 a.m. light. Answer me, Aaron demanded. I stumbled back. Then I regained my bearings. What's wrong? Hmm, let me think. Aside from being clobbered with a cello bow, everything... I lost my house, my family, my job, my island. Me, Aaron shot back. We never, like, did anything, Vicky broke in. Aaron and I both looked over. She was pulling herself together, equally confused, yanking her shirt down and smoothing her dark hair. I lit up. We didn't? That's great. Aaron squinted doubtfully and watched Vicky put herself together and stand. Are you certain, Aaron asked. Vicky chewed on her lower lip for a moment and then pondered the question. She had no interest in lying. She looked down, then towards the remnants of the fire. Actually, no, I'm not sure. I mean, she said the next part softly. Maybe something happened? Aaron exploded at me again. I thought you were ready. Although I had no concrete memory of the night's activities post-last gulp, I was straight up busted and reverted to a new tactic. I took a deep breath and jumped right in. Ah, who cares? I mean, it's perfect, isn't it? Summer's over. 
Time to ditch the homeless jerk drifter and go back to safety. Back to the Gordons of the world. I get it. I have no problem providing you with your last big fling before you head off in a safe city. I've done it for lots of girls. Hell, I'm the last fling king. Don't think for even a second you're the first. Whack! One more cello bow across the back of the head for the rose and she was gone. Running across the rocky beach, I grabbed my noggin and dropped to my knees. I could hear the sound of her maneuvering her bike along with a wildly impressive string of profanity. Piece of shit loser fucking cheats on me. Then she pedaled away. It was over. Just the sound of waves breaking on the rocky beach. I stood there for what felt like an hour, but it was probably less than a minute. Are you like, okay? Vicky asked. I stood perfectly still, pondering an answer. Ask me something else. Brother, what the hell were you thinking? Jack looked over at the biker, who was now glaring at him as the ferry crashed through the storm. She hit me in the head with a cello bow. So what, he snapped back. You deserved it. You can't talk that way to Aaron. She's an emotional person, sure, but she's also a wellspring of compassion. You're blowing it, man. No shit, Dr. Phil. The only reason you feel that way is because I'm doing such a good job telling you the story. The biker pondered that for a moment. You make a valid point. Fine. Go on. It was a dark stretch of Island Road where this phase of the story comes to a crashing and ignominious end. After the brutal instrumental beatdown, I dropped Vicky off at her employee dorm. She was sweet but confused, now caught up in a blurry drama she didn't understand and only wanted sleep. The morning had not yet broken and I wasn't interested in pedaling through town. I needed to ride. Hard. I pushed the old bike with reckless abandon, standing on the pedals for more torque, every muscle in my body burning. Despite having hauled a half a million pounds of tightly packed luggage during my Doc Porter career, my legs never worked harder than they did on this around the island sprint. My eyes watered, which streaked across my cheeks, and morning bugs careened straight into my open mouth. The sound of breaking waves was the only guide at this pace, but I trusted my instincts. And even if I didn't, there was no slowing down. Like steam, it needed to escape. Fired, jailed, gramps gone, kicked out, casinos in, mom, dad, the fumble of the only decent relationship I'd ever had. All of it converging in an intense flare of pain and speed. The wind muffled in my ears and my mind raced. Why was I so cruel? She did nothing but show me the light. She shared her pain with me. She was open and honest about her relationship with Gordon. Hell, she practically slipped me a cheat sheet on how to love her. My only task was to memorize the damn thing. Instead, I tore it into little pieces, tossed it in the air, and embarked on this historical binge. I didn't see the yellow caution sign in the middle of the road until I clipped it with my front tire. Instinctively, I turned the wheel of my bike and veered left on the road into a patch of deep brush and small, scrappy beech trees. The instant my front tire hit the loose stones, I was launched like a supernova, barely able to tuck and roll before landing. It was a painful NFL-caliber thud. My bike flipped and bounced behind me, finally clattering to a halt three feet from my head. I lay there, heaving in exhaustion.
The morning sun hit me square on the face, an interrogation lamp from a lousy cop show. I squinted, stirred, and inspected my surroundings, using only my eyes, not moving my prone body. Three feet away, small, gentle waves lapped on the shore. A few seagulls strolled up and down the beach, scavenging for scraps and squawking with constant complaints. Seagulls are such malcontents. My head craned sideways. I wasn't wearing my watch, but I knew it was after 10 a.m. I rolled over and struggled to sit upright. I looked to my left. A small, tanned boy, probably seven, sat Indian-style about four feet away. He had dark, shaggy hair and looked out at the water as if awaiting a visit from a pirate ship. He glanced over at me as I struggled to life, curious but unfazed. Are you all right, mister? He asked. Yeah, I think. It was all I could muster. Okay, good. He looked at my bent-up porter bike. My dad's getting me some rocks over there. He gestured towards a bend in the beach. He's going to teach me how to skip stones. I struggled to my feet and limped to my battle-scarred bike. The front wheel curved wildly like a Salvador Dali painting. The basket was a parallelogram, unrideable. The kid watched me as I pulled the bike upright. You crash, mister? How'd you guess, I responded, trying to sound like a playful big brother, but knowing it came out grumpy. He smiled when he saw the weirdly bent wheel. Well, you can probably fix it, or maybe get a new one. I rolled the battered bike to the main road. Have fun with your dad, I called. Thanks, the boy called back. He was now standing with his father, inspecting a handful of flat rocks. It was a lovely moment, and I wished for an instant I had appreciated it more when I had it. I turned away and rolled the wounded bike back to town.